Attention! This makes absolutely no sense. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Sanders Facts. Hey, hey, y'all, what's going on? Welcome into the latest edition of the Xander's Facts Podcast. I am, of course, the aforementioned Xander. It is episode 66. Episode 66 of the podcast here on Wednesday, June 15th. Thank you all for listening to the Xander's Facts Podcast. Brand new episode this week. And remember, if you like all the facts, if you think you're going to like the facts on this podcast, if you've liked the facts on the previous 65 episodes, then remember to click the follow button on this podcast, download this episode, rate the podcast, review the podcast, go on all your socials, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Xander's Facts, that's Xander with a Z, and most importantly, remember to tell all your friends about the podcast. It's called Spread the Facts, Xander's Facts Podcast. And you can tell all your friends about the three big facts that we've got this week. Well, not really three big facts, even though that is the title of episode 66. Order 66. Three big facts, three big topics with facts included because we've got three big things to talk about this week. We're going to start with the January 6th committee. You all know about that. Some of you might say, oh my gosh, it's fake news. If you're saying that, I don't know how you're listening to this podcast, but it's not. We're going to talk about that. Are you sure? I've also got some news in soccer because we finally know every team that's going to the World Cup. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about 2026 World Cup. You're going to want to listen to that because it involves you if you live in the U.S. and Major League Soccer. And then at the end of this podcast, our Xander's Facts NBA analyst Hillbilly is going to be making an appearance because the NBA Finals were five games down and it has been a really entertaining series. So Hillbilly is going to give us an update on the NBA Finals. That's coming up later along with soccer. But first... Let's get to our first big fact this week, the January 6th committee hearings. Because if you've been paying attention to the news, you might have heard that the January 6th Congressional Committee is in the spotlight right now. We've talked a little bit about them on the podcast, but over the last week, they have come into the spotlight in a big way because, as they are fully known, as the committee is fully known, the U.S. House Select Committee to investigate the January 6th attack on the United States Capitol began their public hearings last week, which detail what they've learned about the insurrection that occurred on January 6, 2021, on the U.S. Capitol, what they've learned over the past year. And they've been sharing information about the thousands of documents that they've reviewed, along with the many interviews that they have conducted with those inside of Trump's orbit. And if you haven't been paying attention, that's okay. If you have, you know it's been a little while, but if you haven't, that's okay because Xander has, of course. So, Xander warned you. Here is what you need to know about the January 6th committee hearings. Even if you do know, listen up because this is important stuff. And let's start with what the committee has been up to because ever since the committee was set up in July of 2021, the members of the committee and their staffs have been going through countless documents and information related to the insurrection. They've also issued many subpoenas to those around Trump, the former president, on January 6th, along with other individuals. And all the information that they've been collecting has been compiled and is now being shown off at these hearings. And the committee is slated to conduct seven hearings this month. We've already had two, so that means there are five left. And on this committee, there are nine members, seven Democrats, two Republicans. They're all House members. Democratic Congressman Benny Thompson of Mississippi is the chairman 
while Republican Congresswoman Liz Cheney of Wyoming is the vice chair. The other Republican on the committee is Congressman Adam Kinzinger from Illinois, and the six other Democrats are Congresswoman Zoe Lofgren of California, Congressman Adam Schiff, Shifty Schiff of California, Congressman Pete Aguilar of California, Congresswoman Stephanie Murphy of Florida, Congressman Jamie Raskin of Maryland, and Congresswoman Elaine Luria of Virginia. Good to know. So the first hearing for the committee, which occurred in prime time last Thursday night, introduced the case that the committee appears to be building against former President Trump and how he attempted to overturn the results of the 2020 presidential election in order to remain in power. Because if you know... Here comes a fact! He did not win the 2020 presidential election. He was very sad about that and tried to overturn it, even though he lost. So the hearing included never-before-seen footage of the insurrection, including new images of rioters breaking into the Capitol, covered with Trump-related gear, of course, and audio of police and security communications that was also included. So it's a 12-minute video of this footage, a montage, basically, that they put out that you probably need to watch because it's pretty important stuff if you haven't. And I actually posted that last Sunday on Xander's Weekend Facts, which you should check out every Sunday. Seamless bog. Along with being available on Instagram and TikTok, Xander's Facts. Check those out. So I put that there, which you need to watch. And other information was shared from Thompson and Cheney, including word that Trump got from his staff that the crowd was chanting, quote, hang Mike Pence, unquote, you all know because you've seen the videos at the insurrection. Pence, who was the vice president at the time, of course, did not go along with Trump and his efforts to overturn the election. And Cheney shared that when Trump became aware of the chant, he said, quote, maybe our supporters have the right idea, unquote. Mike Pence, quote, deserves it, unquote. Okay. Rude! It was also unveiled that Trump had never called for the National Guard to respond to the Capitol. It instead was Pence. The chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mark Milley, said this about the communications he had with Trump's Chief of Staff, Mark Meadows, and Pence on that day. There were th uh, two or three calls with Vice President Pence. He was very animated, and he issued very explicit, uh, very direct, unambiguous orders. There was no question about that. And, and he was, and, and, and I can get you the exact quotes, I guess, from some of our records somewhere, but he was very animated, very direct, very firm. Uh, and to Secretary Miller, get the military down here, get the guard down here, put down this uh, situation, uh, etc. By contrast, here is General Milley's description of his conversation with President Trump's chief of staff, Mark Meadows, on January 6th. He said, um, we, have, we have to kill the narrative that the vice president is making all the decisions. Uh, we need to establish the narrative that um, you know that the president is still in charge and that things are steady or stable or what's that thing? I immediately interpret that as politics, politics, politics. Uh, red flag for me personally, no action, but I remember it distinctly. And the committee also shared video of the interviews that they conducted with various members of the Trump team and those around him, those in power, including Milley, including. Trump's daughter, Ivanka, and former Attorney General 
Bill Barr. And when asked what he thought of Trump's claims that there was voter fraud, Barr responded with this. Repeatedly uh, told the president in no uncertain terms uh, that uh, I did not see evidence of fraud uh, and, uh, you know, that would have affected the outcome uh, of the election. And frankly, a year and a half later, I haven't seen anything to, to change my mind on that. So then the committee played what Ivanka said of Barr's thoughts. Here's that. How did that affect your perspective about the election when Attorney General Barr made that statement? It affected my perspective. Um, I respect Attorney General Barr. Um, so I accepted what he said, was saying. So then, as you heard, after Ivanka seemingly turned on her father, Trump commented the next day on his platform, Truth Social, which I have found actually does not contain a lot of truths. There's not a lot of truth on there. But anyway. Too bad. He said that Ivanka had long checked out. Okay. The committee also had two witnesses give their testimony live. First was Nick Quested, who was a documentary filmmaker who was following. He was basically encamped with the Proud Boys. He was following them on January 6th as they went around D.C. And additionally, U.S. Capitol Police Officer Caroline Edwards gave her testimony. Edwards was fighting to protect the Capitol on January 6th and suffered a traumatic brain injury and was knocked unconscious by the rioters. So I just wanted to play a little bit of some of the testimony she shared. It was pretty powerful. Take a listen. When I fell behind that line and I saw, I can just remember my, my breath catching in my throat because I, what I saw was just a, a war scene. It, it was something like I had seen out of the movies. I, I, I couldn't believe my eyes. There were officers on the ground, um, you know, they were bleeding, they were throwing up, they were, you know, they had, uh, I mean, I saw friends with blood all over their faces. I was slipping in people's blood. Um, you know, I, I was catching people as they fell. I, you know, I was, it was carnage. It was chaos. I, I, can't, e I can't even describe what I saw. I, never in my wildest dreams did I think that as a police officer, as a law enforcement officer, I would find myself in the middle of a battle. That is some wild stuff. So all in all, the first hearing got a pretty good response, except for, of course from right-wing media and those that will falsely believe that the 2020 election was stolen. The right-wing propaganda machine was in full force trying to discredit the hearings. Fox News did carry the second hearing on Monday this week, but they did not carry the first hearing last Thursday night on their channel. Instead, they shoved coverage over to the Fox Business Network, and they had the hearing on a mute split screen while their primetime propaganda specialists, you know, Tucker, Hannity, all them, went on to attack the hearing. Of course, they probably didn't know what they were talking about because they couldn't hear what they were saying. They also didn't take any commercials for like two hours. So for that entire time, they were losing ad revenue, first off. 
They did that in order to keep viewers from flipping over to see the hearing, because they were scared that they would learn the truth. Evil! Ah, and it also might have been because the first hearing featured text messages from Sean Hannity to various Trump officials. So Hannity was literally a part of the hearing. However, far more people watched the hearings than right-wing propaganda on Thursday night. The primetime hearing got a television audience of over 20 million people, which is basically unheard of for congressional hearings in the modern area. It's basically unheard of for anything except for sports and debates and State of the Unions and inaugurations and stuff. It's a pretty big number, and that also does not include those that watched online on places where the hearing was live-streamed, like YouTube, it was on PBS, it was on social media, and other avenues. But on ABC, CBS, CNN, MSNBC, NBC, all those television networks that cover the hearings, they got pretty good ratings on Thursday night. So then the second hearing was held on Monday morning of this week. It was held during the day, and that included more footage of the interviews that the committee conducted with Barr and others, including former Trump campaign manager Bill Stepien, who was supposed to give his testimony live, but apparently Monday morning he learned that his wife went into labor so he could not be there. But they still played a bunch of his deposition because he already gave an interview. So many former Trump officials, including Barr, Stepien, and former Trump campaign advisor Jason Miller, all believe that Trump was going down a rabbit hole of lies regarding fraud in the election, including Barr claiming, quote, he's become detached from reality, unquote. And here's more audio of Barr from his deposition. I told him that the stuff that his people were shoveling out to the public were bull was bull****. I mean, that the claims of fraud were bull****. And, uh, you know, he was indignant about that. And... Um, I reiterated that they'd wasted a whole month on these claims on the Dominion voting machines, and they were idiotic claims. And uh, I specifically raised the Dominion voting machines, which I found to be among the most uh, disturbing allegations, disturbing in the sense that I saw absolutely zero basis for the allegations, but they were made in such a sensational way that they obviously were influencing a lot of people members of the public, that there was this systemic corruption in the system and that their votes didn't count and that these machines controlled by somebody else were actually determining it, which was complete nonsense. There was never an indication of interest in what the actual facts were. My opinion then and my opinion now is that uh, the election was not stolen by fraud. And uh, I haven't seen anything since the election that changes my mind on that, including the 2000 Mules movie. <laughs> so what the committee laid out was that it became clear that there were two sides that were pressuring Trump on election night. One, not to declare that he won, because he didn't, and wait for the full results to come out, because of course election night was Tuesday. We didn't get a prediction or a winner until Saturday morning. But there were still some on the other side that wanted him to claim or declare victory. The latter side was apparently led by former New York City Mayor Rudy Giuliani. Rudy! Who was described by Stepien and Miller as quote-unquote intoxicated. 
on election night. Yum. Of course, as we know, Trump chose Giuliani because he declared victory that night. Also included was testimony from former Fox News digital politics editor Chris Steyerwalt, who was a part of the Fox News decision desk that correctly predicted Arizona would go for Biden many hours before other networks made that call. And several others gave their testimony, including former Philadelphia City Commissioner Al Schmidt, who claimed that he was facing death threats after Trump attacked him personally on Twitter, because of course he didn't go along with the craziness. One more interesting nugget that was uncovered didn't actually have much to do with January 6th, but with the Trump campaign, because it was revealed that in the two weeks after the election, the Trump campaign raised $250 million advertising a, quote, official election defense fund, unquote. The issue was that did not exist, and we're probably sure to learn more about that in future hearings. As Congresswoman Zoe Lofgren said of that on Monday, quote, the big lie was also a big ripoff, unquote. And we've heard this, basically, because we heard last year, I believe, we learned, or in 2020, that the Republican Party was sending out emails that had these boxes that say, click here to donate! And then, in very tiny print, it said, this signs you up for a recurring donation of blah, 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 for blah, 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 blah. And then a bunch of people were like, hey, why are you taking my money? They're like, we well, use that every recurring donation. They're like, I didn't see that! So then, you know, they got in trouble because, of course, they have to be slimy. You hate to see it. So, finally, with all that, all the witnesses that the committee had give their depositions, all claimed that the 2020 election was not stolen by Democrats and that Biden had won while Trump had lost. Now, of course, what is all going to end up of this? We'll see. There are five more hearings for the committee to lay down their case, so we're obviously going to be learning more information. However, it looks clear that the committee is building a case, and they're just starting, building a case that could result in a potential indictment of Donnie Boy, the former president. After the hearings have wrapped up, the committee is going to release a midterm report, apparently this month or early July, and then a final report is going to come out in September. And then it's up to the Justice Department and Attorney General Merrick Garland. Garland has said that he and prosecutors at the Justice Department have been watching the hearings. Whether it's going to amount to any charges, we're just going to have to wait and see. But it does appear that one thing the committee is trying to go after, however, is that Trump made claims of election fraud in bad faith because he had been told numerous times that there was no fraud. It was noted at the beginning of the second hearing by Cheney that over 840 people had been charged because of their actions on January 6th. So people have been punished. At the top, not so much. Whether the man who instigated it all will be brought to justice, we will learn soon if that is going to happen. So the next hearing was scheduled for this morning, Wednesday morning, but it was postponed. But there are going to be additional hearings that are going to be taking place in the near future, in the next week or two. So definitely stay tuned. And of course, Sanders Weekend Facts is going to have more information on the newsletter. So make sure to check that out every Sunday morning, including this past Sunday when we talked about it. It was the top story on Xander's Weekend Facts, which you should check out. You should also sign up for Xander's Weekend Facts, which is linked in this episode's description. Check it 
out. Who would? So that's the first big fact. And actually, I've got a little tiny something to add on to that first big fact because our last new episode two weeks ago, enough of your thoughts and prayers, you know what it was about, guns. I have some news about that because in some other news, there was a bipartisan Senate group that apparently struck a deal on efforts to prevent mass shootings. The deal does not include the obvious solutions, you all know, like an assault weapons ban, because why do we need blah 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 blah, and universal background checks. But it does include important steps. The framework includes a federal grant program that would encourage states to implement red flag laws, which allow authorities to keep guns away from people that are found as a potential threat. It also includes federal criminal background checks for those under 21 years of age that for the first time would include a search of mental health records and juvenile justice records. It would prevent gun sales to domestic violence offenders, which closes the boyfriend loophole. It establishes new federal offenses related to gun trafficking, and it clarifies which gun sellers are required to register as federal firearms dealers. Also, there's going to be billions of federal dollars that are going to be sent into mental health and school security programs, and there's a separate bipartisan bill in the Senate that is looking to establish community behavioral health clinics across the country. Too many facts. Of course, that's not all that needs to be done, but it is a start. And these are 10 Republicans and 10 Democrats that came together to create this. So it is a bipartisan bill that is filibuster proof. As of now, we'll see that's a framework. So they still need to get the wording down. So hopefully that gets down because these will be good things to pass. Of course, the reality is that the current makeup of the Senate does not allow for an assault weapons ban or universal background checks to pass because you need 60 votes without getting rid of the filibuster. And there are a couple Democrats, you know, who weren't going to get rid of the filibuster. Since Democrats don't have the 60 votes needed, they're not going to pass because those two have no Republican support. Because apparently the Republicans don't want universal background checks and they don't want to get rid of AR-15s because apparently is okay. Xander's spreading lies. And of course, we could remove the filibuster, but there aren't 50 Democrats who support the filibuster. So for now, this is going to have to suffice, at least until the midterms, because we're going to talk about those as we get closer to them here on this podcast. It's going to be a big election season this fall. And just remember, there's one party that supports getting rid of the AR-15s and all the assault weapons, and there's one that's not. Well, oh boy, we'll talk about that later, especially this fall here on the podcast. So that's the politics stuff. That is fact number one out of three. Three big facts. Number two involves soccer. Oh, Xander, shut up. Calm down, bruh. First off, you all need to chill because you might actually like this. I've split this category up into three separate facts. We've got three separate topics in this one topic. So first off, we finally know every team that is going to be participating in this year's World Cup in Qatar. Yuck. Last week, though, as we said on this podcast, in the flashback last week, Wales beat Ukraine in a European playoff to qualify for Group B in the World Cup. That's, of course, the group with the US, the England, and Iran. So that's going to be wild. Two spots were still left this week, though, but they have now been filled because on Monday, Australia played Peru with that match ultimately going to penalties after a nil-nil draw. And just before penalties, Australia subbed in a new goalkeeper, Andrew Redmayne, who then proceeded to dance in the goal. Like before the Peru players were shooting, 
He was going around and flailing his arms like he was dancing. Like, I was seriously like, dude, what are you doing? I'm also pretty wary of goalkeeper subs just for penalties. Because if you watch the Carabao EFL Cup final, Chelsea and Liverpool, Chelsea did that. They had Mendy in goal. They took him out for Kepa Ariza Balaga. He came in and it didn't work because Chelsea lost. Nice try, buddy. However, this one did work because Redmayne made a crucial save on the final penalty to send Australia to the World Cup and leave Peru at home. So Australia is entering their fifth World Cup in a row and is joining Group D, which includes France, Denmark, and Tunisia. Australia was, of course, part of the Oceania Confederation, but they moved to the Asian Confederation now. So it was kind of a tougher path to get to the World Cup. Then, on Tuesday, Costa Rica and New Zealand faced off for the final spot in Qatar. New Zealand, now the top group in Oceania, and Oceania only gets one spot, and that is through the playoff. So New Zealand is the only chance that Oceania has to get into the World Cup. However, Costa Rica scored in the third minute, and they did not let up because they won 1-0, and they denied Oceania from a single spot in the World Cup. Costa Rica are the fourth team from CONCACAF to qualify, along with Canada, Mexico, and of course the United States. And Costa Rica joins Group E, which some are calling this World Cup's group of death. It certainly looks like the hardest right now. Germany, Japan, and Spain. That's going to be tough for probably all four of those teams, but Costa Rica, too. So that's topic one. Topic two in soccer. The 2026 World Cup, which of course is going to be in Canada, Mexico, and the U.S., as you know, because we've talked about it on this podcast, because it's four years away and I'm super excited. No one cares. But speaking of the World Cup, let's talk about the 2026 World Cup. It is four years. It's basically going to be kicking off, like, right about now, in the middle of June four years from now. So on Thursday, we are going to officially know the cities in the U.S., along with the cities in Canada and Mexico, that are going to be hosting World Cup games. So we aren't actually sure how many cities are going to be hosting games, but it's most likely going to be between 16 and 19 between the three countries, including between 10 and 12 cities here in the U.S., So in Mexico and Canada, the selection for the cities appears straightforward for now, because in Mexico, it looks like Mexico City, Guadalajara, and Monterrey are going to be hosting 10 games in total. In Canada, 10 games are also going to be played there. It looks like Toronto and Vancouver are basically locks. The only other city that is bidding on games right now is Edmonton in Canada, and that looks unlikely. So if Edmonton is out, then that means that that U.S. number would probably jump from 10 to 11, maybe 12, but probably 11. So in the U.S., right now there are 16 cities that are bidding for games, and those cities, here we go, Get ready! are Atlanta, Boston, Cincinnati, Dallas, Denver, Houston, Kansas City, Los Angeles, Miami, Nashville, New York City, Orlando, Philadelphia, San Francisco, Seattle, and Washington, D.C. and Baltimore. So inside those bids, New York City games would be played at MetLife Stadium, which is in New Jersey, and D.C. games would be played in Baltimore with fan festivities in D.C. I'll actually get to that in a second. But there has been reporting which has shown which cities are favorites 
We're not going to get the official announcement until Thursday, but right now it's looking like Atlanta, Dallas, Los Angeles, and New York are the four certain locks that they are going to be getting games. New York, those games are of course going to be in New Jersey, is actually looking like the most likely city to host the final. Although that decision may not be announced tomorrow, but the only other reported final candidate is actually Dallas, where games would be played in Arlington at AT AT&T Stadium, where the Cowboys play. Atlanta is going to host games at their new Mercedes-Benz Stadium, where the Falcons play, and also Atlanta United of MLS, and they could probably host the semifinal, and Los Angeles is also certain to get games, but the question in LA is where, because the 1994 World Cup That final was held at the Rose Bowl, but now they've got SoFi Stadium, which is, you know, very nice. And that appears more likely. The only issue, though, is that the field at SoFi Stadium is not wide enough for soccer. Ironic, considering that the owner of the Rams, Stan Kroenke, who owns the building, who got it constructed, is also the owner of Arsenal in the Premier League. So, you know, he probably would have thought about that. You dummy! However, the field could be widened, but the seat capacity would probably decrease. So, but the games are probably going to be played at SoFi. Philadelphia is also likely to get games at Lincoln Financial Field. In fact, 2026, if you didn't know this, here's a fact. 2026 is actually going to be the 250th anniversary of the United States. It's a fact. I mean, hopefully we get it that far. And celebrations are already being planned in Philadelphia. So it would probably be pretty cool if those can coincide with World Cup games. And Philadelphia is obviously going to get games. San Francisco, although the games would be played in Santa Clara at Levi's Stadium, which is not, I don't think it's even near San Francisco. NRG Stadium in Houston and Looming Field in Seattle. All those are also looking set to get games. Two cities that probably don't look as likely, but still should, are Miami and D.C. Miami would make sense because it has the reputation as an international city. That would make sense for soccer and FIFA. But the new Formula One race that is around Hard Rock Stadium has reportedly been a concern for FIFA. But Hard Rock Stadium should probably still host games in Miami. And D.C. has been a major issue. Because if you didn't know this, FedEx Field is an absolute garbage dump. It is a dumpster. And a new stadium, which they're talking about, of course, they try to get a new stadium in Virginia. But, you know, first off, Danny Boy Snyder is a terrible human being. And then Jack Del Rio started calling the insurrection a dust-up, which... I don't even know. I'm very close to fully renouncing my fandom from that piece of garbage organization. But anyway, that's just, I hate them. Disrespectful! A new stadium wouldn't be done in time for 2026. So Baltimore and D.C., because Baltimore was bidding as well, Baltimore and D.C. ultimately merged their bids. So the games are going to be played at M&T Bank Stadium in Baltimore, and the fan festivities are going to be in D.C. So... That's kind of strange, but FIFA is probably not going to pass up having a presence in the capital of the United States, especially the most powerful nation in the world, 250th anniversary too. So that's probably going to happen. So that's 10. That's 10 cities. And most likely all of those are going to be announced on Thursday. Now, as I said, if there's only two Canadian cities selected, there's most likely going to be an 11th city 
There could be, there couldn't be. We still don't know. But if there is an 11th city, it's most likely going to be Kansas City. The games will be played at the home of the Chiefs, Arrowhead Stadium, and would most likely be the only Midwest city because you're probably asking, why is Chicago not there? Chicago bowed out of the bidding in 2018, years ago, because of taxpayer-related issues. FIFA was being mean, I don't even know. But Kansas City is probably going to be the only Midwest city. And then if there's a 12th city, although that seems unlikely, that would probably be Boston. But Boston's bid is in serious trouble because Gillette Stadium is so far outside of Boston in Foxborough. Like, it's, I don't think it's even in the suburbs of Boston. And the only reason that it appears to be in contention is because of the owner of the Patriots and MLS's New England Revolution, Robert Kraft, who has been working on this 2026 bid. He's one of the founders of MLS. He's been a big proponent of soccer in this country. You know, he also does some other things that we won't talk about on this podcast. Yikes! But he's also got a stadium that is way outside of Boston. So, like, he is probably the only reason that Boston is being considered. And Boston, right now, as it's being reported, is not likely to get games. Nashville is also an option, but the stadium where the Titans play, Nissan Stadium, is reportedly going to be replaced very soon. So they're going to build a new stadium. And that new stadium is probably, maybe, not going to get done in time for the summer of 2026. That's what FIFA's worried about. So that's kind of an issue for Nashville. However... Soccer journalist Grant Wall, who has been reporting about these things, is reporting that Nashville could probably host the World Cup draw, which is where the nations are placed into groups for the World Cup. The other three are Cincinnati, Denver, and Orlando, and they are seen as total long shots because Cincinnati and Paul Brown Stadium just is not impressive. It appears as though there's only going to be one city in the Midwest. I don't know if you can count Denver as the Midwest, but the choice is either Denver or Kansas City, and apparently Kansas City appears to have impressed. Denver's got that elevation issue, too, which you might have to worry about. And Camping World Stadium in Orlando is not that great. Miami getting games probably doesn't help Orlando. So, with all that, there you go. That is who we think is going to be hosting World Cup games in this country and in Canada and Mexico in 2026. And we're going to know for sure when that announcement is made tomorrow. And you'll also be able to watch the announcement live on Thursday. That is at 5 o'clock Eastern p.m. on FS1. So you can watch it. Oh my gosh, it's going to be in New York. It's going to be amazing. I doubt it. Who cares? Also, not with the World Cup, but the Premier League, which starts their season in August, they're going to be unveiling their schedule for the upcoming season on Thursday as well at 9 a.m. Britain time. So... 9 a.m. Britain time is 4 a.m. Eastern. I don't think so. Which is, I'm not going to be up, but it doesn't matter because we'll all figure it out. So that's topic two. Topic three was something that made big news on Tuesday, the day I'm recording this podcast. So news came out on Tuesday about a new television deal for Major League Soccer, which is the top soccer league in the United States. MLS currently has the deal with ESPN, Fox, and Univision that lasts through the end of this season. The season started in February, I believe. It ends in November, right before the World Cup. But MLS has signed now, they made it official, a 10-year deal with Apple 
in a historic move probably for a major U.S. sports league. Beginning in 2023, every single MLS match is going to be available through Apple, which is the first time that a major sports league in the U.S. has gone all in on streaming. So according to the announcement which Apple and MLS made and further reports, Apple and MLS are going to develop a separate subscription service from Apple TV+, Plus, which is going to house all MLS matches, League's Cut matches, and some MLS Next and MLS Next Pro matches. And if you don't know, League's Cup is a competition that features MLS and Liga MX clubs. Liga MX is the top soccer league in Mexico. And that tournament started a couple years ago. It only had eight teams total. But beginning next year... Every single MLS and Liga MX club is going to be competing. So it's going to be this whole month-long thing. It's going to be huge and a lot of games. And Apple's going to have all those. They're also going to have MLS Next, which is a youth soccer league from MLS, and MLS Next Pro, which is a professional league, but it's a third-tier professional league. So you got the first tier, which is MLS. you got the second tier, which is USL Championship and stuff like that. And you've got the third tier, which is USL League One and MLS Next Pro. That's the soccer pyramid. There's like, it goes, it's crazy. You gotta look it up. No! But it is not known how much that service is going to cost, or if you're going to need Apple TV Plus to purchase the service. And Apple TV Plus costs $5 per month right now. So this is going to be like an additional add-on. However, Apple is going to broadcast some games for free on the Apple TV app, and then for some games, you'll just need an Apple TV Plus subscription, so you only have to pay those $5. Apparently, there's going to be like one or two games a week that you're only going to need Apple TV Plus for. So the biggest changes with this deal are that it's all streaming. There is a lack of a linear television component, but also there's a big increase in revenue for MLS. So let's get to that TV first, because the deal in does include all of the games, does not include any games on TV. We're talking about ESPN, ABC, Fox, Univision. It is being reported, though, by Sports Business Journal that the Apple deal is going to allow games to be simulcast on television if MLS can strike a deal. So Sports Business Journal is reporting that ESPN and Fox and Univision, among others, are still talking with MLS about putting games on television, like as has been going on. The thing with that is, though, these games would be simulcasts, and they would still be available through Apple. So the TV networks might not like that very much, and they might not pay very much for that. And the thing is, ESPN has been broadcasting MLS games ever since the league was founded after the 1994 World Cup in 1996. Because if you didn't know, a huge condition for getting the 1994 World Cup in the US, FIFA said that you have to develop a top soccer league in the U.S., and that was MLS, which came out two years later. So there you go. That's a fact! And then also with that, because not all the games were on TV, a lot of them were on streaming. They were streaming on ESPN+, Plus. the out-of-market games. So if you were out-of-market, you could watch MLS games on ESPN+, Plus that weren't on TV. And the local games, like your local team, like if you live here in Virginia like I do, DC United is on NBC Sports Washington, so all the teams had local TV deals. Those are gone. So now, every game you have to watch on Apple, unless you go to the game. And apparently, if you're a season ticket holder to an MLS club, you're going to get this new service for free. So that's another change. And the other thing 
is money, which of course, oh, money. Nice! But money's probably the biggest thing here, actually, because under this deal with Apple, MLS is going to be receiving a minimum of $250 million per year. That is a minimum, actually, because MLS is reportedly going to be getting additional revenue from the subscription service on Apple. So under the previous TV deal that MLS had with ESPN, Fox, and Univision, it was a combined deal with U.S. Soccer. So it had MLS games and it had the U.S. Soccer games. That was for $90 million per year. And in that, only $65 million went to MLS and the other $25 million went to U.S. Soccer. So those rights were unbundled this year, and U.S. Soccer actually signed a new TV deal with Turner Sports. So beginning next year, 2023, all U.S. men's national team and U.S. women's national team home games are going to be on TBS, TNT, and HBO Max. But for MLS, going from $65 million per year to a minimum of $250 million per year is an almost four times increase in television revenue. And any potential TV deal that they get with Fox, ESPN, or Univision, or whoever, could increase that $250 million number. That's a lot of numbers. So that ultimately means a lot more money for all the MLS clubs, which could mean a drastic increase in the salary cap, which is going to allow clubs to buy better quality players, which is going to enhance the quality of the league and make it more attractive for the best players in Europe potentially, and it also allows more money to invest in youth development here in the U.S. so we can get better players here from the U.S. More Christian Pulisics, more Weston McKinney's. Yes, please! So also included in that Apple deal that was mentioned is a weekly whip-around show like NFL Red Zone, which is probably, hopefully, could get a lot more people into soccer because you don't have to just watch one game you can just watch all these goals going around. Like, it'd probably be pretty cool. So, just taking a look at Apple for a second, because this is kind of interesting, because Apple came out with Apple TV Plus a couple years ago, and now they're getting into sports. This may be the biggest sports rights acquisition yet for Apple, although it does not look like it's going to be the last. Earlier this year, Apple and MLB struck a deal for a Friday night doubleheader of MLB baseball games on Apple TV Plus, which began the season. So you've got sports airing on Apple TV Plus now. Apple is also rumored to be a frontrunner for the NFL's Sunday ticket package, where you can watch all the out-of-market games, along with Amazon. Sunday ticket's current deal with DirecTV ends after this upcoming season. So a lot of change for the NFL, which signed their new TV deals a little bit ago, which go into place after this upcoming season, and MLS. So hopefully, although we may not get as many games on TV, there's going to be a place for everyone to watch MLS on Apple TV+, Plus, which hopefully they market. And MLS is, of course, going to be getting a lot more money, so hopefully the quality of the league improves. And of course, MLS is betting on streaming. MLS, out of I guess you could say the five biggest sports leagues, because you got the NFL, NBA, MLB, NHL, and then the MLS, five biggest sports leagues in the U.S. MLS has the lowest average viewer. It's about 40 years old, I believe. So they're kind of banking on younger fans watching on Apple and discovering on Apple. So we'll see. But that's the three things I've got for soccer, and that is fact number two. We've got one more fact. Are we done yet? And that is where I bring in our Xander's Facts 
NBA analyst Hillbilly to give a little bit of a breakdown, a little bit of an update of the NBA Finals. We are midway through the Finals. Game 5 just happened on Monday. Game 6 is happening Thursday. Oh my gosh. So with that, I welcome in our Zaners Facts NBA analyst Hillbilly. Hillbilly, welcome back to the podcast. How are you? I am thirsty for facts. Oh, very nice. All right. Well, we are going to have a ton of basketball facts here. We've got three big facts this week. This is fact number three. We are talking the NBA Finals between the Golden State Warriors and the Boston Celtics. Game five of that series happens on Monday night. Game six is happening Thursday night. So we are right in the thick of it right now with the Warriors leading the series three games to two. So I'll just start here, Hillbilly. Overall, your impressions of these finals. Is it playing out like you imagined it would in our pre-finals show? I think overall it basically is, but it is, I mean, there are surprises along the way, of course, but I think it's generally playing out about the way that I expected it to. It's, it's a defensive struggle. Both teams are playing very well defensively, very, really incredibly defensively. Like you break down some of the plays and it's just amazing some of the things that they're doing and just how hard the offenses have to work to get a basket. So let's kind of go game by game here real quick. Game one was, of course, in San Francisco, Golden State. Boston won that one, and I think that was a surprise. It was definitely a surprise to me, but a lot of people because we said Golden State had not lost a game one at home in, what was it, 14 series? I mean, that had to have been a surprise to you. Yeah, it was. I didn't think that Boston would take either one of those games. I mean, Golden State uh, hasn't lost at home in the playoffs this year. Until now. Yeah, until now. And then, of course, they did not lose in Game 2. They won by 19. That was kind of dominant. But then we go to Boston, and of course it's 1-1, so Boston has the home court advantage, and they go up 2-1 with a 16-point win in Game 3. And then Game 4 was... Game 4 was pretty back and forth, though, wasn't it? I mean, you've got... You had Boston... Uh, bleeding for some of that game in Golden State. And really, if you're Boston, you know, that's a missed opportunity in Game 4. Going up 3-1, of course, only one team has ever come back from a 3-1 deficit. The Warriors know that well from 2016. But, you know, that's probably that was a huge missed opportunity by Boston in Game 4. And then you see what happens in Game 5 with Golden State coming back winning and going up 3-2 in the series. Whoops. Yeah, I think Boston is probably kicking themselves more for Game 5 than Game 4. Game 4, Curry was just on fire. It's really difficult to win when uh, you've got a guy playing at that level. I mean, that, that game was also just some incredible defense by Boston. Every shot Curry was making... He's like falling down, splitting through two defenders to try to pop up a three. Just really incredibly high level of difficulty. And if he's going to do that, I think Udoka in the press conference basically said as much that, you know, like that's, I mean, we're playing good defense on him. We we're doing what we're supposed to do. When he's playing like that, he can't do it. But then game five, he, he throws out a stinker, or he does. And they still lose. 
which has <laughs> got to be a lot more frustrating for Boston. Because you've got so many guys like Andrew Wiggins showed up. Draymond Green finally, you know, did something in Game 5, but Andrew Wiggins was really the guy in Game 5. But I was going to say with Curry in Game 5, I mean, he put up at least two, you know, crazy three-pointers at the beginning of the shot clock, which you're like, it's Steph Curry, you know. But he missed them badly. He did not, you know, didn't have that great of a game. But they've got so many guys that it doesn't matter sometimes. Yeah, I mean, it, and that's the thing. I mean, Game 5, from so many different perspectives, had to be disappointing for Boston. I mean, they finally win a third quarter. They have lost every third quarter in this series, all four of the three third quarters before Game 5. They lost by a score of 136 to 87. Which is an absolute thrashing in the third quarter, which a lot of people will say is is really that pivotal quarter where you can just blow teams out. Finally, Boston won a third quarter. And they they didn't just win it on lucky shots. They looked like they were playing better basketball than Golden State. Tatum finally had what looked like a good game where he went, what, 10 of 20, 5 of 9 from three-point land for 27 points, leading all scores. So he finally has that game, which he hadn't really had yet. Kevon Looney is a guy that had been killing him for Golden State. He picks up three fouls in about as many minutes in the first quarter, so he gets in foul trouble. And then on top of all that, for the first time in 233 straight games, Curry doesn't hit a single three-pointer. Do better. He's never had that happen to him in a playoff game in his entire career. Wow. He has always hit at least one. You have all of those things happen. And Golden State still wins with subs in the game at the end, you know, where it was just, it was a blowout at the end. That has got to be extremely demoralizing for Boston because you got to wonder, like, it, it wasn't Curry killing us. It was their whole team killing us. And it seems like the one predictor that really holds true in all of these games is turnovers. Boston just cannot get out of their own way with the turnovers. They lost it 18 to six last night in the fourth. They lost it four to zero. The Warriors didn't have a single turnover in that fourth quarter where they took the game over. That's a big problem. When your guys cannot hold on to the ball, they tend to lose focus a lot. And, you know, I think one of the things that we talked about in the preview of this series was how many more minutes Boston players had played. And it has gotten even more exorbitant now, the difference between them. And I think that that shows up, and I don't think it gets really enough attention how much that affects a team. You know, you think about turnovers are a function of focus, like how much you are able to keep your focus throughout the entire game. So is shooting, I mean, the difference between hitting the front of the rim and a swish is typically your legs are tired. All of those things are super important. And the minutes battle between these guys, it's it, it's got to be one of the biggest differences we've ever seen. Tatum, well, okay, Steph Curry has 724 minutes that he's played so far this postseason, which is a fair amount for somebody at that stage in the finals. That's about normal. Jason Tatum has played 943 minutes. He is on pace to come close to tying the all-time record. Whoa. Wow. And 
every single player that has ever had more minutes than him played in the postseason lost, except for Tim Duncan one year. So when you play that many minutes, you are naturally going to be tired. You're naturally going to be messing up. You're going to be throwing passes that you regret a split second later that turn into a really quick layup for the Warriors. And that's happening over and over again. And you don't see it on the flip side because the Warriors just are not as run down. That's how in a game five that was brutal to watch. Because, I mean, it was so physical. They are running so much. That's why the Warriors can get zero turnovers in the quarter. It's because they are so fresh. They're still able to really focus on what they're doing. And mentioning turnovers, the Warriors have 103 points in the series off of turnovers, which is the third most since 1990. And those two other teams were the Bulls in the early 90s, Michael Jordan. And also, the, you talked about the minutes thing before the series, and that has obviously happened. And we talked about Jason Tatum, who is 24 years old, coming out in the series. This could be his coming out party, which hasn't happened. He's struggled, and I think a lot of that, because I was really surprised to learn that he is up there in record territory for minutes played in the playoffs, which obviously has to be true. He's the best player for the Celtics, and they played two seven-game series just before this. But I think that's a big issue, is Tatum, their best player, has not performed as well as we have seen him in this series. Yeah, he's he's made some mistakes. You can see it on his face that he just, he as soon as he throws the pass, he knows he messed up. It, it also seems like he's taking excuses not to run down the floor every time. Like, he'll be whining at the refs or, or whatever else it is. Quit your whining. And it just seems as though he's tired. But it's not just Tatum. And Brown's also paid, played 876 minutes. I mean, that's still 150 minutes more than Curry has played, who has the most for the Warriors. All of the Warriors are in the 700s. Too many facts. All right, so those are the first five games. The Warriors are up three games to two. We've got... Maximum of two more games, maybe just one more in this series. Game six is the next game on Thursday of this week. So, Hillbilly, who do you have winning game six? Well, I, I, I think we both predicted that this would go Warriors and six. Mm -hmm. I think I'm going to stick to that, even though, I mean, it's hard to imagine Boston losing three. But I really think that game last night was really kind of crushing for them. That's the first time they've lost back-to-back -back games since the regular season. That had not happened in the postseason. Mm -hmm. And they talked about that, too. They would regularly mention that, like, you know, we can figure it out. We'll beat them the next game. Couldn't do that against the Warriors. That said, I think that the Celtics obviously match up very well. But I just don't see the problems that they have getting a lot better. Getting a lot better. Um, I don't see Curry missing every single three-pointer again. I mean, it's hard to imagine that he can go 266 games and then he's going to have two in a row. I think one of the narratives is that it's kind of Curry versus the Celtics and that, you know, the, the next four players, you know, if Curry's the best player on the on the court, then the next four are, the Cel are Celtics players. And I don't think that's really borne out. I mean, I think the, you know, conventional wisdom is that both Tatum and Brown are better than anybody else on the Warriors, not named Curry. But, you know, if you look at the statistics, I'm not sure that that really bears out either. You, I, mean, if, I think Wiggins is a lot closer 
to those two guys than you might think. Um, he doesn't score quite as many points. I mean, you know, Brown puts up about 21 and a half and Wiggins is like 18 and a half. But field goal percentage, he's over both of them. Rebounds, he's way over both of them. Turnovers, he has less than half of either one of them. He has about a third of what Tatum has. And the big thing is that plus minus, both Brown and Tatum are in negative territory, and Wiggins is a plus five. He looks like he is giving Tatum a really hard time constantly out there. And he's, I mean, he's just playing great. So I I don't think it's really that true that you have Curry versus the Celtics. I think there's a lot of support, as we just saw. And I think that that's going to carry over into Boston. I know Boston's going to come out you know, strong, but I think that their lack of a half court offense and their penchant for turnovers, which doesn't seem to be going away. I mean, they knew they had to win that game last night and they still turned the ball over 18 times. They will never win when they do that. They also went 0 for 12 to start the game from three point range, which was the most missed three point field goals to start a game in Final history. I don't think that's going to happen on game six, but I will also stick to my earlier prediction and say Warriors in six. I would not be surprised if the Celtics won. And you say home court advantage. That has not mattered that much. The Warriors have won in Boston. The Celtics have won in San Francisco. And I could, I could definitely see the Celtics winning. I don't think I could see the Celtics winning two games in a row if they have to go back to San Francisco for it it does seem unlikely and and remember the Celtics did miss their first 12 later in the game Golden State missed 13 in a row so that's not that's also not going to happen again and later in the game the Celtics hit eight in a row where they made eight in a row which is also not going to happen again it's weird the way that the law of averages has worked out here it's not usually clumped up like that you know, usually it's a little more spread out, but you know, it's 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 unlikely that I that any of those things are gonna happen again. But I don't what what is not just likely but definite is that this cumulative fatigue is gonna really get Boston. And that another part of it is the way that Golden State runs. If you watch them on offense, they are running. Steph Curry basically runs 48 minutes. Well, however many minutes he plays, he is running, running, running. And if you guard him, you have to run constantly. And that can really, really wear down a team as well. I think part of this is just kind of a learning experience for Boston and them realizing just what it really looks like this deep into the playoffs when you are that exhausted. It's why you don't mess around with teams that you should handle like the heat sick burn i mean all all due respect to the heat i mean they were without their second best offensive player in hero and kyle lowry was a shell of himself boston should have crushed them they really should have and they played with them and now they're paying for that they were a shot away from losing too from not even being here they were and that's the other thing is Boston in close games, Boston is horrible. They make mistake after mistake at the end of close games, which is why they don't win them. I think the only close game they've won was that game against the Heat, but that was only because they let the Heat come back from like a 20-point deficit in the fourth yeah. quarter. And you can't just make up your own stats in clutch time like that, you know? 
I, I, it's, it's hard for me to imagine the Warriors getting blown out twice in a row. And if they're close games, I think the Warriors have a significant advantage. And I, th- I do think game six will be close. And I, I think experience plays into this too, because Curry, Clay, I think Clay's gotten better in the series, and Draymond. I think all three of them have been here many times before, and none of the Celtics have. And game six, end of the finals. And they, the Warriors, they, they knew what was what they knew what was coming. You know, they knew like what they had to have in the tank in order to find in order to get there. And in that fourth quarter last night, it did not look like Boston had that much left in the tank. And of course, they're going to get a couple days rest, and they're going to be fine when they come out in Game Six. What'll be interesting to see is if those young legs can you know carry them over in the second half because they haven't been able to do it in the last two games all right hillbilly so before i let you go the talk has been can steph curry win his first finals mvp so who is going to who do you think is your mvp in the finals right now well right now it's got to be curry i mean after last night you're tempted to say wiggins because he had such a great game last night but it's it's obviously curry Almost to the point where even if the Celtics won it, I, 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 I can't point to a player on the Celtics that is clearly better than Curry in this series, or even in the same neighborhood. I mean, Tatum's had one good game, and that was nothing compared to what Curry had done the game before that. I know that's not what's going to happen. Whoever wins is going to get the MVP, MVP but I, I do think that it's, I think the Warriors will win, I think, and I think Curry will get it. And it would have to be somebody on the Warriors would have to really outplay Curry for Curry to get denied again. I'm just looking at the stats right now, and Curry's averaging 30.6 points right. per game in the finals. And Wiggins and Thompson are two and three at 18. I mean, they, it could change in the next game or two. Wiggins or Thompson or Poole could go off or whatever and do something crazy, but right now I think it's clearly Curry. These are facts. Yeah, and. Clay Thompson has also, he's gotten better over the last couple of games. His defense has gotten better to the point now where when you put out Thompson and Wiggins and Green and Looney, those are four like elite level defenders. And Thompson's shooting has gotten better. He hit a couple of huge threes last night. It just seems as though his confidence is getting better, and that can't be good for the Celtics. All right, Hillbilly, well, there you go. Our NBA Finals update, Game 6 of the Finals. If the Warriors win, it is over. That is Thursday, 9 o'clock, tip-off Eastern on ABC. And then if if Boston wins, Game 7 is going to be in San Francisco Sunday night at 8 o'clock on ABC. Hillbilly, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks. Sanders Facts. And there you have it, Hillbilly, with our NBA Finals update. And that is fact number three. Three big facts this week. So there you have it. That is episode 66 of the Xander's Facts Podcast. Thank you all for listening. Remember, if you liked all the facts that were on this week's edition, there were a ton of them. Remember to follow this podcast, download this episode, rate the podcast, review the podcast, go on all your socials, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, if you've got any of those, go check out Xander's Facts. That's Xander with a Z. And most importantly, tell all your friends. Spread Facts, Xander's Facts Podcast. Remember to check out Xander's Facts on YouTube. This episode and a bunch of our previous podcasts are on YouTube with the nice pretty background, which you can watch. 
take a look at that. Check out the Xaner's Facts link tree. It's got every Xaner's Facts link that you need, including Xander's Weekend Facts from Substack, our newsletter, which is free every Sunday morning. It comes to your inbox if you sign up with your email. Check out Xander's Weekend Facts. New one is dropping out this Sunday morning. Check that out. What are you talking about? So, next week, episode 67, we got a brand new podcast. Once again next week, which you've got to check out because we're going to have a ton of facts about something. What is that something? Find out next week on the Xander's Facts Podcast, episode 67. But that is it. That is a wrap on episode 66 of the Xander's Facts Podcast. Thank you all for listening, and we'll see y'all with episode 67 next week. That took forever.